This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its original promise of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, February 19, 2023. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. Today I'm going to ask an interesting question. Do we have a right to misinformation? But first, you know, legislation shouldn't be for sale, but here we are. Those that raise the most money in their campaigns usually win their elections and off to Congress they go, making laws that serve the people that pay for their campaigns and betray the people that voted for them. The Citizens United Supreme Court decision, which said corporations have individual free speech protections under the First Amendment, made it possible to throw unlimited amounts of money into elections. Is the situation hopeless? No. Check out Move to Amend. Move to Amend is behind a constitutional amendment that'll put an end to corporate rule and the corrupting influence of big money in elections. It'll unwind the Citizens United decision. For more information on how much our government has been corrupted by unrestricted campaign financing and what you can do about it, you can find Move to Amend online at movetoamend.org. So here's an interesting question. Do we have a right to misinformation? I mean, do we have a right to be misinformed? To be sure, we have a right to information, as implied in our First Amendment right to free speech, but do we have a right to misinformation? Now, I know that question sounds kind of cynical because it sounds like I'm asking if we have the right to be given information that we know is not true. So let me turn it around a bit. Do we have a right to put information out there that we know is either not true or at the very least may be untrue? Okay, so let me step back just a moment and ask a basic question. What is the difference between information and misinformation? Now, in general, what I've been able to find is that information is based on facts and evidence and data, whereas misinformation is based on falsehoods, inaccuracies, and sometimes intentional manipulation. And I believe it's important for each of us to be vigilant in verifying information and seek out the reliable sources to avoid being misled by information. But that's not always easy, is it? For example, in the case of COVID, the initial guidance on masks was based on the available evidence at the time, which suggested that masks were not necessary for healthy individuals. But as more research was conducted and more was learned about the virus's transmission, the guidance evolved and masks were recommended as an effective means of reducing the spread of the virus. In other words, the initial guidance on masks was based on incomplete information because the science on the virus was still evolving. However, once the science became more clear, the guidance evolved to include masks as the previous guidance was replaced with new and more accurate information. Now, understandably, this left a lot of folks confused, and some continued to say that masks were ineffective. They pointed to the initial statements on masks as proof that the scientists didn't know what they were talking about. They further pushed this narrative to include guidance on vaccines. Okay, so before I get lost in this example, where am I going with this? So here's the thing. Social media companies like Facebook and Twitter have been accused of censorship and collusion with the government. Now, the ostensible purpose was to stop the flow of misinformation with regards to COVID. Is this true? 
Did the government attempt to suppress certain social media users because it didn't like the messages that were being sent? And if it did happen, are social media companies within their rights to censor? Well, I don't really have a straightforward answer to those questions. We'll leave it to the zealots in Washington, D.C. to conduct their investigations, but I thought it would take some time to understand the legal framework to put everything in context. First of all, understand that there is no explicit right to misinformation in any legal or ethical sense. In fact, spreading misinformation can cause real harm to individuals and society as a whole. Misinformation can contribute to the spread of a disease, discourage people from seeking medical treatment, and even incite violence or undermine democratic institutions. At the same time, it's important to balance the need for accurate information with the protection of freedom of speech and expression. This is why many societies have laws and norms that protect free speech, but also place limits on it in certain circumstances, such as when speech incites violence or promotes hate. Now, while individuals may have the right to express their opinions and beliefs, they also have a responsibility to ensure that their speech does not cause harm to others. It's important for each of us to critically evaluate information and sources and to be aware of the potential impact that misinformation can have on our lives and our communities. Secondly, let's take a look at what it means to have freedom of expression. It's well known that the internet has transformed the way we communicate and share ideas. It's provided people around the world with a platform to advocate for change without the need for significant resources or technical expertise. This freedom that we experience in the U.S. is thanks to a law called Section 230, which protects Americans' freedom of expression online and encourages the growth of user speech. Now, Section 230, which is originally part of the Communications Decency Act, prevents most civil suits against users or services based on what others say. This means that we individuals are responsible for our own actions and statements online, but not those of others. Now that's key. We're responsible for our own actions and statements, but not those of others. This concept protects small blogs and websites and big platforms and individual users alike. Now, it's important to note that Section 230's protections are not absolute. It does not protect companies that violate federal criminal law, create illegal or harmful content, or infringe upon intellectual property rights. So without Section 230's protections, many online services like Facebook and Twitter would have to painstakingly filter and censor user speech or not host any user content at all. Now, this would drastically reduce the amount of user speech online, particularly on controversial subjects. As a result of Section 230, communities have flourished online, providing us with political, educational, cultural, and entertainment services. Section 230 reinforces the First Amendment's protections for publishers to decide what content they will distribute. But here's an important concept. Social media companies, large and small, can moderate user speech and content as they see fit. Now, different approaches to moderating users' speech allow users to find places online that they like and avoid places that they don't like. Now, I want to emphasize that. Section 230 protects social media companies from most user content, but at the same time, it allows them to moderate and censor content as they see fit. In non-democratic countries, governments can and do directly censor the internet, controlling the speech of platforms and users. But in democratic countries, governments tend to not get so involved in censorship. 
Now, there are some exceptions to this. For example, intellectual property infringement, which includes copyright or trademark infringement. That also includes music, by the way. Also, sex trafficking. I mean, I think this is a no-brainer. Nobody wants the internet to be used for sex trafficking, and we'd like to see people who do use the internet for such things punished. Also, terrorism is included on that list. Social media companies can be held liable for user-generated content that promotes or supports terrorism. Uh, defamation is also included. Social media companies can be held liable for user-generated content that is defamatory, meaning that it contains false statements that harm someone's reputation. And also harassment and cyberbullying. Social media companies can be held liable for user-generated content that constitutes harassment or cyberbullying, especially if they fail to take action to remove the offending content when it is brought to their attention. Now, I want to get back to this idea of censorship insofar as social media companies censoring their users. As private companies, social media companies have the right to set their own rules and terms of service, including what types of content is allowed on their platforms and what types of content is not allowed. They also have the right to enforce these rules and remove content or users who violate them, including by censoring information. So I think the question for social media companies is this. When it comes to COVID misinformation, what are the legal obligations and responsibilities? When does misinformation get to the point where people die because they were misinformed on an important public health topic? And if such misinformation can be verified, are social media companies and the government obligated to step in? Well, from that perspective, I believe we're in uncharted territory. There are no clear answers. Into this void steps social media companies that clearly don't want their users dying, nor do they want to be accused of violating free speech parameters. So they make what, they, what seems to us anyways to be arbitrary decisions based upon limited data. Were some of these decisions made in collaboration with the government? I think it's entirely plausible because these companies don't want to end up on the wrong end of a lawsuit, so they may have looked to the government to provide some cover. What really made matters worse is that COVID was politicized. This further cluttered the distinction between information and misinformation by putting a political spin on the subject at a time when political polarization is crippling this nation. Michelle Mello, a professor of law at Stanford Law School and professor of health policy in the Department of Health Policy at Stanford University School of Medicine, she perhaps said it the best. She said, quote, Often when an issue becomes polarized, people view messages from the group they don't identify with as suspicious and messages from the group they do identify with as trustworthy, regardless of how well the message aligns with the evidence. If we can't make sound decisions about how we interact with information, we can't make sound decisions about health. I can only add that the stakes have become really high in this political environment. It would seem our lawmakers have a lot to sort out in pursuit of this question of our right to misinformation. My purpose for bringing this up today is maybe to throw some cold water on a hot topic. I honestly don't believe our government and social media companies are out to quash our First Amendment rights, but by the same token, Social media companies, whether or not you like it, are completely within their legal right to censor user content. And the government may be acting in good conscience to define the parameters by which social media companies make their decisions. Maybe, maybe not. In any case, I believe that ultimately our Congress needs to revisit Section 230 and provide more clarity and guidance. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And whether or not you agree with my concerns, I hope I was able to make you think. I don't want you to agree with me. I simply want to inspire your ability to think and act on your beliefs. 
You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its original promise of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead. We hope you tune in again next week.